When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, we are looking at the mysterious disappearance of the Roanoke Colony. But first, we need to understand how the colony got there to begin with. So, the European exploration of the Outer Banks of modern-day North Carolina began in the early decades of the 16th century. The Florentine Giovanna de Varencio, in the service of the French King Francis I, skirted the Outer Banks in 1524, and the following year, the Spaniard Pedro de Cuejo passed by on a voyage to the Chesapeake Bay. Neither the French nor the Spanish made any effort to settle the region. However, not other than a brief visit by the Spanish in 1566, Europeans really showed no interest in the Outer Banks until the Roanoke voyages sponsored by Sir Walter Raleigh nearly 20 years later. So in 1584, Raleigh, an enormously wealthy courtier and favorite of Elizabeth I, and we will explore Walter Raleigh on another day. Um, he got permission from Elizabeth I to establish a colony in North America. He got a letters patent, which was the legal instrument for the venture were issued in the spring and permitted him to discover, search, find out, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories not actually possessed of any Christian prince and inhabited by Christian people, and to hold, occupy, and enjoy forever all the soils of the land, countries, and territories. So. To be discovered or possessed. Basically, in effect, he was given exclusive rights to possess and exploit the resources of the whole of the continent under the sovereign authority of the crown, excluding only those parts already inhabited by Christians, that is, other Europeans, or other Europeans. Raleigh's aim was to establish a colony so as to stake England's claim to the largely unknown, well, to the Europeans, landmass of North America, and from which he could launch raids on the Spanish West Indies and annual treasure fleets. In late April 1584, he dispatched two small ships commanded by Philip Amadeus and Arthur Barlow, reconnaissance expedition, that arrived off the outer banks a few months later. Entering into the shallow waters of the sounds, the Pamlico, Albemarle, and the Currituck. They discovered numerous fertile islands covered with valuable timber and teeming with game. Local natives were described as very handsome and goodly people and in their behavior as mannerly and civil as any of Europe. One island in particular might turn out to be a suitable location for the first English colony. Roanoke, 10 miles long and two and a half wide, 
which was inhabited by peaceful natives who would be their friends and allies. On his return to England in the fall, Barlow wrote an enthusiastic account of Wingencon, as the English initially called coastal North Carolina. Besides information gathered by the English during their own explorations, two natives, Manteo and Juan Chis, brought back to England, provided valuable reports about the people of the region and settlements inland, including a large city to the west called Skyacoke, and rumors of gold as well as a passage to the South Sea that lay at the head of the large riv river called Oakham. Raleigh was delighted with the outcome of the voyage and began planning a full-scale expedition to plant a colony on Roanoke Island the following year. In April 1585, Raleigh fitted out a fleet of five ships and two pinnocks, carrying approximately 600 soldiers and seamen under the command of Sir Richard Grenville, his cousin. After a difficult crossing during which the fleet had been scattered for much of the voyage, the expedition arrived off the Outer Banks in June and began exploring lands along Pamlico Sound. After a difficult crossing during which the fleet had been scattered for much of the voyage, the expedition arrived off the Outer Banks in June and began exploring lands along Pamlico Sound. A couple of months later, Grenville moved the fleet to a mooring off Hatteresque Island and sent Ralph Lane, a veteran of the wars in Ireland, to establish a fort and settlement on Roanoke Island. Grenville and the fleet departed shortly after to return to England for additional settlers and supplies leaving behind a garrison of 108 men under Lane's command. In the winter and spring of 1585 and 86, Lane sent out two exploratory parties to the north and west. The first expedition discovered the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay and made contact with native people along the southern shore of the bay. The second, in the spring, explored the Chowan and Roanoke Rivers during which the English picked up stories from natives of copper, possibly gold mines, far inland. But this time, Lane had concluded that the colony should be relocated to the Chesapeake Bay. Deepwater rivers would make better harbors for English shipping than treacherous waters of the Outer Banks, and from which colonists could mount further expeditions into the interior of the North Carolina, into the interior of North Carolina to find the native mines that had eluded him. Lane was forced to abandon Roanoke Island in late June 1586, owing to hostilities between the English and the Secotans, upon whom Lane's men depended for food. He arranged with Sir Francis Drake, who had arrived off Hatterasque Island within a large fleet from the West Indies earlier in the month to transport the colonists to the Chesapeake Bay, but a hurricane hit the coast as the men were about to embark and persuaded Lane to return to England instead. Back in London, he reported his discoveries to Raleigh and emphasized the advantages of the Chesapeake Bay as a location for a settlement from which to fit out explorations inland. 
to search for gold mines and a passage to the South Sea. Determined to make another attempt, Raleigh sponsored a final expedition and placed in command John White, who had been on the two previous voyages. In April 1587, White led a group of 118 men, women, and children, including his daughter Eleanor and his son-in-law, Anianus Dare, besides many friends and associates to establish a settlement on the Chesapeake Bay called the City of Raleigh. They never reached their destination. However, the mariners responsible for transporting them, led by the master pilot, Simon Fernandez put the settlers off at Roanoke Island instead and refused to take them any further. After remaining on the island for six weeks, White returned to England with Fernandez at the end of August for supplies and reinforcements. So this is where our story is going to take a turn, and you're about to see why. So he was unable to get back to Roanoke Island for three years, by which time the colonists had completely disappeared, leaving behind only a cryptic message, C-R-O, and Croatoan, that told him they had moved to Croatoan Island 50 miles to the south, where Manto's people lived. Whilst trying to reach them, a fierce storm drove his ship out to sea and the attempt was abandoned. White returned to England and then moved to Munster in Southern Ireland, where he likely died in the early years of the 17th century. What happened to the colonists remains a mystery still to this day. So, standard historical accounts argue that a small group were moved to Croatoan Island probably in 1587 or early 1588, while the main group went to live with the Chesapeake, na the Chesapeake natives on the southern shore of the Chesapeake Bay, possibly near the Lynnhaven River or Elizabeth River. Other research has provided a different theory, whereby the main group moved due west up to the Albemarle Sound to the lands of the Chowanoaks. Some might have eventually moved further west up the Roanoke River and joined the Tuscarora people. Whether the southern shore of the Chesapeake Bay or in North Carolina, sent in the spring of 1607 by the Powhatan Paramount Chief, the father of Pocahontas, to destroy the colonists and their Indian allies. Wahanaskak apparently feared the possibilities that the Jamestown settlers who arrived in the Chesapeake Bay in late April might develop contact with the Roanoke settlers and peoples they lived with and thereby threaten his chiefdom. A few of the Roanoke colonists survived the attack, however, and fled up the Chowan River or found refuge with the Tuscacaro people at a place called Okanahoan on the Roanoke River and to the south, possibly on the Tar River at a town named Pakarakanik. Descendants of the small group of settlers who went to live on Croatoan Island also, also survived. 
So the New York Times says that Roanoke's lost colony was never lost. And an, this is what a new book. So they're saying a new book aims to settle a centuries old question of what happened to a group of English colonists. Archaeologists said that its theory was plausible, but that more evidence was needed. There's another important thing. There was an etching found in the 1870s, and it depicts John White returning to the Roanoke colony in 1590 to discover the settlement was abandoned. And the National Geographic says that a newfound survivor camp may explain the fate of the famed lost colony of Roanoke and provides compelling evidence to help solve one of America's oldest historical mysteries. Pieces of broken crockery recently unearthed in a North Carolina field belonged to survivors of the ill-fated lost colony, the first English settlement in the Americas. That dramatic claim has stoked a long-simmering debate over what happened to the 115 men, women, and children abandoned on North Carolina's Roanoke Island in 1587. Working on a bluff overlooking the Albemarle Sound, 50 miles west of Roanoke Island, a team from the First Colony Foundation uncovered a trove of English, German, French, and Spanish pottery pieces. The number and variety of artifacts recovered provide compelling evidence that the site was inhabited by several settlers from Sir Walter Raleigh's vanished 1587 colony, said archaeologist Nick Lachetti, the team's leader. The announcement came just months after another archaeologist claimed to have found objects related to the lost settlers on Hatteras Island, located about 50 miles south of Roanoke Island. If both discoveries hold up, they support the theory that the colonists split up into two or more widely separated survivor camps, almost certainly aided by Native Americans with whom they likely assimilated. The lost colony was made up largely of middle-class Londoners who found themselves stranded on the North Carolina shore when the Spanish Armada attacked England, plunging their nation into war. At the time, the colony's governor, John White, was in London gathering supplies and, and additional colonists. But when he finally returned to the settlement, three years later he found it deserted. The only clue to the settler's fate was a post carved with the word Croatoan. That was the original name of the Hatteras Island and its native inhabitants who had been on friendly terms with the English. One of them, Manteo, traveled twice to England and was made a lord by Queen Elizabeth I. White also wrote that the settlers intended to move 50 miles into the main. An apparent refer reference to an inland site, the governor never located the settlers who included his daughter, Eleanor Dare, and his granddaughter, Virginia Dare, the first English child born in the New World. So this is where it gets interesting. 
so the case went cold until about 2012. Researchers noticed a patch on a watercolor map of eastern North Carolina painted by white. Beneath the patch, they found an image of a fort at the head of Albemarle Sound. Its location is 50 miles to the west of Roanoke Island, matching the governor's account. On top of the patch was another faint outline of a fort. This was drawn in what analysts said was invisible ink. So scholars speculated that White wanted to hide the existence of the fort from the Spanish, who viewed the Roanoke Venture as a threat to their domination of North America and the critical shipping lanes off North Carolina's Outer Banks. The Spanish sent an expedition to wipe out the rogue colony, but they, too, failed to find the settlers. In 2015, Lucchetti's team excavated the area marked on the map, close to a Native American village called Medicom, since early European colonists typically built their settlements near Native American sites, this seemed a good place to start. Clay Swindle, an archaeologist associated with the First Colony Foundation who examined Metaquam, said the Palisade Village was home to some 80 to 100 people just outside its wall at a place they called Site X. Lucchetti's team found no fort, but they did uncover two dozen pieces of English pottery that they maintained likely belonged to the lost colony survivors. In January, the archaeologists excavated in a field two miles north of Site X, which they dubbed Site Y. Here, they found European ceramics in far greater number and variety than at Site X. Lucchetti contends that at least some of the settlers moved from Roanoke after White's 1587 departure, bringing along their European ceramics. He says that a small group, possibly a single family, may have taken up farming alongside their Native American neighbors as they waited in vain for a rescue. So, William Kelso, an archaeologist who led the effort to uncover the 1607 Jamestown fort, is confident the finds solve one of the greatest mysteries in early American history. The Odyssey of the Lost Colony, other Archaeologists, however, warn against jumping to conclusions. I am skeptical, says Charles Ewan, an archaeologist at East Carolina University. They're looking to prove rather than seeking to disprove their theory, which is the scientific way. So the scientific way is to always, you want to disprove the fact. So it's kind of like when you, um... So it's kind of like how analytics work, right? So if you really love lollipops and you go online and you're searching for lollipops and there's amazing lollipops, they're the greatest lollipops in the world and you find out all of the ingredients in the lollipops and you find out how they can help you be a better person. You will find a million different facts or people saying that lollipops are amazing and you've always been right. They're wonderful and they're perfect for you. However, if you go into this saying, why are lollipops bad for me? 
you will find a ton of different information and scientists and it'll explain why lollipops are, are bad for you. So that is a scientific way. So you always want to like try to find the dis you always want to disprove the theory, right? Historians in their excitement to I think Rita talked about this um, a couple of weeks ago. Okay, so it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, right? You, you're researching something for years. Like, for me, I've been researching Malaga Island for over 10 years. And for me, I am passionate about everything. And I want to learn as much as I can. But, but in my excitement, I might overlook things that I find of no value for me. Because it might discredit what my actual belief is. So, say, changing someone's belief on anything is difficult, right? So, if you have, like, a long-stemming belief how something is 100% right, there's, it's going to be very difficult for me to prove to you that you're, that you're wrong. It, it, this is very hard for me to explain any other way. So hopefully I'm giving you a good explanation of what I'm talking about. But you always want to follow the scientific theory. Do any historical research and any research you do, you always want to find the conflicting evidence, right? Because that's the only way you're going to be able to piece around to tell the, the full story. So, okay, let me try to explain this a little bit better. So in our theory, lollipops are great and they're wonderful for us and they have positive health benefits. When we set out to do research on this, our mind it wants to only see the positive things. Anything that contradicts it, we are going to immediately to try to shut out and not see because to us, lollipops are great any of those contradicting facts that tell us that our belief is wrong, we, we avoid at all cost. But that is not the scientific way. So if we follow the scientific way, we know that lollipops are full of sugar, they're bad for our health, they're bad for our teeth. So many dyes and chemicals it goes the list goes on and on and on and on so now we've seen two different things lollipops are amazing and we love them but lollipops are really bad so what is the truth in the middle right so we have to use both sides so we know that a lollipop once in a while it's fine but because we have all of the evidence we can make a good decision about lollipops I hope that explains my long-winded explanation of a very simple thing. Okay, so we will continue with Charles Ewan. He's an archaeologist at East Carolina University, and he says that they're looking to prove, rather than seeking to disprove their theory, which is the scientific way. Lachetti's assertion hinges on dating the small pieces of pottery. No easy task since styles remained the same for long periods of time. The ceramics at Site X and Site Y 
conceivably could have been left by later English traders which came from Jamestown, which was settled two decades after the failed attempt at Roanoke. Now, researchers agree, however, that the discovery of two separate caches strengthened McKetty's case. And he says that he has no problem with their interpretation of the ceramics in question as possibly late 16th century and potential, potential, and potentially associated with the lost colony. Jekai Jaquai Pierce, a ceramic expert at the Museum of London, while all the pottery continued to be made well into the 17th century, she says it seems unlikely this particular collection of pots was made after 1650, when the first known English traders began to infiltrate the area. Still, the finds were mixed with soil plowed in subsequent centuries by later settlers and enslaved Africans, and the team has yet to find clear remains of an Elizabethan homestead. One must find artifacts of the known 16th century date in a stratigraphically sealed context, says Henry White, an archaeologist at the University of Michigan. One intriguing clue that points to Roanoke colonists rather than Jamestown traders is the lack of 17th century clay pipes at Site X and Site Y. Early Roanoke expeditions appropriated pipe smoking from the Native Americans, and Raleigh made it fashionable in England. So these were slender clay pipes with small bowls, and they were quite distinct from their indigenous counterparts in material and style. They were inevitable parts of any English trader's kit by the early 16th centuries, but these pipes did not turn up at sight Y. Pierce called the absence of these significant. If any of the inhabitants of the lost colony smoked, then they would have used native pipes rather than London-made ones, she said. So while Lucchetti's team was digging at Site X, a group led by Mark Horton, then an archaeologist at the University of Bristol, was excavating the remains of a Native American village on today's Hatteras Island, the historical Croatoan. Working with volunteers from the Croatoan Ar Archaeological Society, he uncovered European artifacts, including the hilt of a 16th century rapier and part of a gun. Scott Dawson, head of the society, said the artifacts provided evidence that the colonists assimilated with the Croatoan people. We now know not just where they went, but also what happened after they got there. He wrote of the colonists in a recent book. Horton, who has not yet published his finds, cautioned that these objects were all found in a context dating from the mid to late from the mid to late 17th century. That means they might be heirlooms passed down by the descendants of the colonists or later trade goods obtained from Jamestown. Lucchetti doubts that large numbers of Roanoke colonists descended on Croatoan, in part because environmental evidence indicates that rainfall was scarce in the decade following the settlers' arrival. 
You don't just dump, this is what he says. You don't just dump a hundred people on an island in a drought, he said. But Horton said the discoveries from site X and Y and Hatteras give credence to the increasingly popular theory that the lost colonists went their separate ways and merged into the local Native American communities. This is typical in situations like shipwrecks, he says. Order breaks down and you end up with several survivor camps, and there is a clear precedent in 1586. When food ran perilously short for members of the first Roanoke colony, its leaders dispersed his hundred settlers across the region, including to Croatoan, so they could forage, a tactic that proved successful until they could hitch a ride back to England. Dawson hopes to resume digs on other parts of Hatteras in the search for a survivor's camp, while Lucchetti's team also intends to continue their hunt. There is not enough data, but they should keep looking, says Ewan. So, five years earlier, so in 2015, the National Geographic wrote that the search began so in 2015, the National Geographic wrote, we finally have clues to how the lost Roanoke colony vanished. And the search began when an anxious Englishman named John White waded ashore on North Carolina's Roanoke Island 425 years ago this month. This was in 2015. Appointed governor of the fledgling Roanoke colony by Sir Walter Raleigh, White was returning from England with desperately needed supplies. But when he stopped ashore, but when he stepped ashore on August 18th, 1590, he found the settlement looted and abandoned. Abandoned. The vanished colonists had left behind only two clues to their whereabouts: the word Croatoan carved on a prominent post, and C R O etched into a into a tree. Ever since then, explorers, historians, archaeologists, and enthusiasts have sought to discover the fate of the 115 men, women, and children who were part of England's, England's first attempt to settle the New World. Efforts to solve America's longest-running historical mystery, dubbed the Lost Colony, produced dozens of theories, but no clear answers. No two independent teams say they have archaeological remains that suggest at least some of the abandoned colonists may have survived, possibly splitting into two camps that made their homes with Native Americans. Mark Horton, an archaeologist, says, The evidence is that they assimilated with the Native Americans but kept their goods. So, a collection of newly discovered European objects, including a sword hilt, broken English bowls, and a fragment of, sl of a slate writing tablet still inscribed with a letter could point to the pre presence of the colonists on Hatteras Island, about 50 miles southeast of their settlement on Roanoke Island, as well as a site on the mainland 50 miles to the northwest. The evidence is that they assimilated with the Native Americans but kept their goods. An archaeologist at Britain's Bristol University who heads the excavation on Hatteras. Meanwhile, 
at the mainland site on the Albemarle Sound near Eddington, North Carolina, Nick Lukeny of the First Colony Foundation believes that his group has unearthed pottery used by the lost colonists after they deserted their Roanoke settlements. Members of both teams admit they can't yet claim to have solved the vexing riddle, and many of their colleagues are skeptical that the artifacts can be definitively tied to the ill-fated colonists, given difficulties in dating them precisely. Ivor Noel Hume says, You have more work to do, and warns that the former colonial Williamsburg archaeologist who excavated at Roanoke Island in the 1990s. Hume met with Horton and Lucchetti last month to discuss their finds. The digs signal an important shift away from Roanoke Island, where researchers have found frustratingly few signs of an early European presence. A gentleman's ring. Hey. A chunk of iron, exclaims Margaret Dawson, a nurse and volunteer excavator, as she sorts through the black earth at a site on Hatteras Island called Cape Creek. She and her husband, Scott, a local teacher, founded the Croatoan Archaeological Society, named after the island's native inhabitants in 2009, and have sponsored Horton's annual digs ever since. Hidden in a live oak forest close to Pamelico Sound, Cape Creek was the site of a major Croatoan town and trade hub. Under Horton's supervision, volunteers are, volunteers are busy searching through fine mesh screens filled with mud from a nearby trench. The Dawson's two young daughters are quick to spot tiny Venetian glass beads. During a two-day excavation in July, the sieves produce ample Native American as well as European material, including deer and turtle bones, homemade and imported brick, Native American pottery, hunks of European iron, parts of 16th century gun, and a tiny copper eyelet that may have been used in clothing. In 1998, archaeologists from East Carolina U University found a 10-carat gold signet ring here engraved with a prancing lion or horse, an unprecedented find in early British America. The well-worn object may date to the 16th century and was almost certainly owned by an English nobleman. Like most of the European finds at Cape Creek, however, the artifact was mixed in with objects that date to the mid-17th century, a full lifetime after the Roanoke colony was abandoned. Horton argues that members of the lost colony living among the Croatoan may have kept their few heirlooms, even as they slowly adopted Indian ways. One of the most unusual recent discoveries is a small piece of slate that was used as a writing tablet along with a lead pencil. A tiny letter M can just be made out on one corner. A, sim a similar though much larger slate was found at Jamestown. This was owned by somebody who could read or write, Horton says. This wasn't useful for trade, but was owned by an educated European. Another artifact unearthed recently at Cape Creek is part of a hilt of a rapier, a light sword of a type used in England in the late 16th century. In addition, a large copper ingot, a, 
large iron bar and German stoneware showed up in what appeared to be late 16th century levels. These may be signs of metallurgical work by Europeans and possibly by Roanoke settlers, since Native Americans lacked this technology. There are trade-in items here, Horton says, gesturing at the artifacts, but there is also material that doesn't come from trade. Were these the personal possessions of the colonists? If the gold ring inspired Horton's dig on Hatteras, then a 1585 watercolor map drawn by White prompted the Hearst Colony Foundation to turn its attention to the mainland, known as the La Virginia Pars Map, and part of the British Museum's permanent collection. The document made headlines in 2012 when researchers discovered a tiny four-pointed star hidden under a patch layered atop a map. One theory is that the symbol may have marked the location of an inland fort. If such a fort was built in that location or even planned or discussed, then it might have been a logical destination for at least some of the displaced colonists. We think this represents the Roanoke colonists, says Lucchetti, holding out two slivers of green pottery. The shards were found on a recent weekend excavation at what the First Colony Foundation calls Site X on Albemarle Sound. In 2006, Lucchetti and his colleague Clay Swindle from the Museum of the Albemarle investigated a site in the vicinity of the four icons spotted later on White's map. There, they found a massive quantity of Indian pottery. pottery. Archaeologists suspect the site is a small Native American town named Metaquam. More recently, in an area adjacent to the village, the first colony team uncovered English pottery similar to that dug up on Roanoke Island and common at Jamestown, but not typical in the second half of the 17th century. When English settlers filtered south from Virginia to settle North Carolina, other pottery typical of the later 17th century is absent. Excavators also found a metal hook possibly used to stretch hides or tents, as well as an anglet, a tiny copper tube used to secure wool fibers, were largely replaced with hook and eyes in the first half of the 17th century. They've shown up on Roanoke Island and Cape Creek as well. In all, the team has found 275 pounds of Indian pottery, including several centuries of settlement, Swindle says. The English material, called borderware, accounts for a few dozen pieces amount to three or four pots. He notes that the first recorded English settler in the area did not arrive until about 1655. Lucchetti adds that, unlike the Cape Creek site, there are no obvious trade goods that suggest exchange instead of resident colonists. He thinks that the colonists may have moved here to live among Indian allies after White's departure, but Brett Riggs, an archaeologist at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, not involved with the dig, notes that Native Americans were quick to scavenge any material left by Europeans, which is a good point. Anything of utility they took back to their homes, he says, they would vacuum it all up. 
Even bottle glass was valuable for shaping arrowheads. He warned that European goods don't equate to European settlers. Foundation volunteers admit they have not clinched their case. What we have found is tantalizing, says Martha Williams as she pauses from her work sifting soil on a recent morning at Site X. I would love to see some definitive evidence, but what we have is fragmentary. So Charles Ewan also says, we still don't know what happened and we are waiting to be persuaded. Dating material within a few decades to distinguish lost colonists from later settlers is difficult. Radiocarbon and other dating methods are not precise enough, and pottery styles don't change uniformly over time and space. Which is a good point, because if you think of um, Egyptian artwork, artwork doesn't change for a very, very, very long time. If you look at paintings of, of presidents, you will see that at least this is a judgment i could be wrong but if you but if you look at at least the first 20 presidents their paintings are identical and if you think about the years apart between four eight and sometimes longer their dating they're all the same they don't look different and I heard another uh, historian say once that if you did an archaeological dig of World War II, right, and in 200 years, and they start digging for, for evidence that World War II happened, but their dating is off, and their dating in 1990 instead of 1940 it's 50 years only 50 years if you start digging around in america or in europe anywhere and you start digging and you get to the to 1950 or and, and you get to 1990 if you're old enough to remember 1990, you will know that there is almost no evidence of World War II anywhere around. Nothing. There's new buildings. There's new... The, the nature has taken its course and trees, trees and plants have uprooted and the world is taking care of itself like it's supposed to. So there's absolutely no evidence of World War II. If... if you use this logic that you can you can look between this date and that date, right? When people are doing historical research and digs, and archaeological digs in particular, they think, oh well, you know, a, a couple of years, 50 years, what's the difference, right? Because to us, the time frame, if we're looking at like evidence of Jesus, for instance, and and we're digging in the sand looking for evidence. We're like, oh, it was so long ago, only 50 years. Doesn't make that much difference, but 50 years makes a huge difference, right? So yeah, that is a very good point.
and this is their point and I like their point as well. For example, remains of a borderware pot found across the river in Eddington date to the late 17th century. I couldn't date artifacts between 1590 and 1630, says Hume, a respected expert in colonial material. Did someone keep something for six weeks or six years? It's very hard to know amid the new finds and trenches yet to be dug. Archaeologists say they are hopeful new clues may yet crack the case of the missing colonists. There is still a lot of dirt to move, says Swindle, and none of the groups have yet published detailed scholarly articles analyzing and cataloging their discoveries. We still don't know what happened, and we are waiting to be persuaded, says Charles Hewen, an archaeologist at East Carolina University, who is not part of either team. I don't think anything is off the table. So I think I want to take a quick sidetrack to the Dare Stones. So this can definitely not be a dive into the lost colony of Roanoke without, of course, going into the Dare Stones. My opinion on the Dare Stones. I want to say when I was younger and I had heard about the Dare Stones, I was intrigued. So on a fall morning in 1937, an Emory University geologist was walking down a hallway in the alumni building when he bumped into a middle-aged man carrying a rock. The man explained that he was a tourist who had found the 21-pound the 21-pound stone near the North Carolina-Virginia border. He was looking for someone to explain the strange markings on its gray surface. When a team of Emory scholars deciphered the carved message, they were stunned to find a heart-ending plea from a grieving daughter to her father detailing the bloody murder of her husband and child and potentially solving the nation's oldest mystery. The writer claimed to be Eleanor Dare and the message was addressed to her absent father, Governor John White. Married to Anais Dare, Eleanor gave birth to Virginia, the first English child born in the New World. Shortly after, the English colonists landed on Roanoke Island. The carefully carved letters told a bone-chilling story, and here's what the stone says. Father, soon after you go, for England, we came hither. The tale begins. The colonists suffered two years of only misery and war, but led to the death of more than half the settlers. Trage tragedy struck when the Indian shamans warned that the spirits were angry and all the remaining English, save seven, were abruptly killed. Among the dead were mine child and Anias to slain with much misery. The dead were buried four miles east of this river with their names writ al there on rock. The tourist said 
he found the stone about 50 miles inland from Roanoke Island, matching White's passing mention that the settlers had planned to move 50 miles into the Maine. So the Emory team in 1938 declared the stone's message to be authentic, and the find quickly became America's most surprising archaeological discovery on the 350th anniversary of the Lost Colony. Soon after, a Georgia stonecutter found more than three dozen stones, also claiming to have been written by Dare. They told a gothic story of a nightmarish trek by Eleanor and the remaining colonists, ending not far from what is now Atlanta, Georgia. By then, Emory officials had grown skeptical of the first stone's authenticity after the, cor the, after the tourist could not be located, and the rock was transferred to Renault College outside Atlanta. In 1940, a team of three dozen experts, led by the esteemed Harvard historian Samuel Elliott Morrison, met at Bruneau to study all the rocks. They declared the predominance of evidence points to the authenticity of the stones. The news made headlines around the nation, but a skeptical reporter with the Saturday Evening Post in a devastating 1941 investigative article, unmasked the Georgia Stonecutter as a fraud. The revelation damaged academic careers and embarrassed Bruneau for the next three quarters of a century, including the so-called Dare Stones. For the next three quarters of a century, the so-called dare stones, including the first found by the tourists, were hidden in a college basement. So in 2016, the president of Brno, geologist Ed Schrader, took the first stone to the University of North Carolina at Asheville for analysis. After slicing off one end of the quartzite stone, he discovered the interior was bright white while the exterior and carvings were much darker. The original inscription would have been a stark contrast to the weathered exterior, a good choice for a Roanoke colonist, but a poor one for a modern forger. As Matthew Champion, who leads the United Kingdom's Norfolk Medieval Graffiti Survey, explains a freshly cut inscription would appear bright white on the stone, particularly so on this type of stone, and it takes a great deal of time for that whiteness to fade. Champion and Trader agree that using chemicals to mask the color, particularly in 1930s, would have been difficult. Eric Don, a Los Angeles art conservative who am analyzed the Dead Sea Scrolls and Sistine Chapel frescoes, says that new methods for identifying trace elements and isotopes as well as ultraviolet and multi and multispectral photography could help determine the truth of the stone's message but detailed chemical analysis of the carvings crevices has yet to be done <laughs> epigraphy the study of inscriptions could provide another line of evidence. 
Heather Wolf at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. explained high-resolution images of the stones and concluded there is nothing ju that jumps out at, as a forgery. Her doubt was the use of Eleanor Dare's three initials, EWD. This was not a standard way to sign one's name in that era. Another scholar of Elizabethan literature, John Wilson of Cambridge University adds, there's nothing in the inscription that couldn't be of its purported date. Not everyone agrees, citing the initials, the use of Arabic numerals, and several word choices unlikely to have been in Eleanor Day's unlikely to have been in Eleanor Dare's repertoire. Diamard N.J. McCulloch, a Tudor historian at Oxford University, dismisses the carved messages as having all the, all the plausibility of Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent in Mary Poppins. What's needed, says Champion, is a multidisciplinary study of the stone that uses new evidence in chemical analysis epigraphy, and the study of rock cut Elizabethan inscriptions to produce fresh data. Bruno, Bruno Schrader hopes to organize such a study in the near future to see once and for all whether the message writ on rock is one of America's most important artifacts or a remarkable fake that duped some of the country's most respected scholars. So yeah, I remember looking into the Dare Stone, and the original Dare Stone did always strike me as very interesting and curious. However, the other stones legitimate. It seems like the first Dare Stone got a lot of attention, and then maybe someone else. It was typical at the time, period. So, you know, well, well, we just don't know yet. So we'll have to find out. But yeah, the Lost Colony is always interesting, and there's no answers. I've also heard that, so if one group goes 50 miles one way, and the other group goes 50 miles another way, the likelihood of every single one of those people dying before finding a civilization that's conducive to them living and not being able to get word out is unrealistic, in my opinion, because there was over 100 people there when John White left the island. Second, the fact that they're left in August on this island off the coast of North Carolina in August, you have no idea living on the coast of New England how many hurricanes literally hit that island almost always. These people would have had no way to have prepared for such a hurricane or the almost constant tornadoes i just i don't know it just seems like to me i think a hurricane hit the island and i think that's what happened and they didn't know what to do and they didn't have anything in place like we have today for safety during a hurricane or any of that. Cape Hatteras and hurricanes are synonymous with each other. And 
I think that if we do find evidence of Roanoke colonists, it will be it being under the water somewhere. I really, that's, that's my interpretation and that's what my belief is. I have no facts to back that up except for the fact that Cape Hatteras prone for hurricanes and they're so bad there like like we're not talking about you know a, a we're not talking about hurricane force winds like northern New England where they're like it's dangerous yes but we get like ones or twos I'm talking about like fives and when hurricanes hit there still even to this day with all of the building technology that we have today with everything we have those islands get torn apart year after year it's almost shocking that anybody anybody chooses to live there I'm baffled by it so this is what I have on Roanoke Island, and I hope it's not too preachy, but these are just some of my opinions. Like I said, I have no facts, no facts to back anything that I say personally up with, except for what the historians and the archaeologists have said. If it's a statement of my fact, I have no, except for my opinion, nothing. All right. So I hope you all learned a lot and I will see you all again soon.